Last week, we looked at the day of the census. And now, we're going to fast forward 19 days and look at Numbers 10, which is the day of Israel's departure from the foot of Mount Sinai. I'm going to read from Numbers chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. Now, in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So they moved out for the first time, according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. The journey begins. This is the beginning of Israel's journey. Uh, they are breaking camp after a profound experience at the foot of Mount Sinai. And 19 days earlier, God had commanded that a census be taken as an occasion for his people to actually look back and affirm via a gift of silver their confidence in God as their difference maker. They were able to say, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the Lord. And now 19 days later, the cloud has moved and they are following God. When it says the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony and the sons of Israel set out on their journey, it's basically saying that Israel as a people are following God via this cloud. Now, the fact that they are following him actually begs the question, how did this happen? <laughs> how is it that they are doing this? Rochelle and I, this December, will celebrate uh, 49 years of being married. And you could well ask, well, when did you first meet? And Rochelle has a more vivid recollection of this story than I do, but uh, at, in college, I was teaching a, uh, or leading a discussion group at our college group at my church, and Rochelle came, and she was a part of my discussion group. And I apparently asked a question, we were looking at a passage in Corinthians that referred to baptism, and I said, now which baptism is he referring to? And Rochelle was thinking, well, water baptism, right? So she said, water baptism. And I said, no, that's not right. <laughs> oh, and yet look at us today. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's appropriate to ask, let's do a little flashback. Here's Israel following the cloud, following God. God and Israel had their first meeting, and it was a dramatic panic-inducing encounter 11 months earlier. So let's flash back and see what we can discover about that first meeting, all right? They arrived at Mount Sinai exactly three months after the exodus leaving Egypt. And for 11 months at the foot of Mount Sinai, God prepared them for their journey with him. And then they set out in Numbers 10. So I want to focus on their first meeting in order to understand how any journey with him begins. Their journeying with him, how did that start? I want us to look at the same to understand what's really going on when they are leaving. Now, in their case, they met God at a mountain. You see behind you a picture of Mount Rainier. Uh, Mount Rainier is, uh, if you take Alaska out of the picture, it's one of the fifth 
or it is the fifth highest mountain in the contiguous United States. Uh, at the time that I had my encounter with the mountain, it was reported as 14,410 feet. I've since seen some things that say it's 14,417. I'm not sure if it's grown or just the, the numbers are changing, but this is what I saw, not this nice of view, but this is what I saw every day from my home in Puyallup, Washington, out the window. And you could tell what the weather was gonna be like based upon what was happening at the mountain. So when I graduated high school, I determined I wanna climb this mountain. And uh, this is not a little hike, it is a technical climb to some extent. There are, I'm not sure if it's 40 or 100 people in the last, I guess it's probably about 40 people in the last 100 years who have died making this or attempting this climb. So it's one where you need to have some training. Uh, you need to understand what it means to be roped up with a group so if somebody goes in a crevasse, the rest of you can uh, pull that person out and we actually did things in the training where you would take someone and put them off a precipice and make sure we could get them and things like that. So it was not a simple climb, but I felt good about it when it came the day to do that. I'd gone through the training in previous weeks, and uh, we, uh, this view that you're seeing is at about the 5,000-foot level, which is as high as you can drive to paradise. Uh, and then from there, you would hike up one day. You would go to uh, Camp Muir, and then from there, you would leave about midnight and go to the summit. You would hit the summit about 8 or 9 in the morning, and then you would come back down. And so anyway, I, I felt good about my, my trip. You know, I was in, I was in shape, uh, ready to do this, had my training. Uh, we slept, you know, went to bed about 4 p.m. at Camp Muir. Then about midnight, we woke up to rope up and head on up. We started climbing. And I did not realize it at the time, but I have since discovered this, that I am highly susceptible to altitude sickness. So what that meant is about every 100 yards, now I had a terrific headache, but about every 100 yards, I would relieve the contents of my stomach. And of course, you know, the people I'm roped up with, you know, they're having to, you know, cooperate with all of this because we're not going anywhere. When I got to the top, I didn't make the summit, but when I got to the top, I had had these visions of this grand vista and standing victorious and looking all about me. Instead, I just crawled in a crevice and just, I'm, I'm so miserable. <laughs> now, the bottom, now, I made it back. I'm, I'm here. It's all good. But it illustrates I was not prepared when I went to the mountain. I was not ready. And we're about to read about Israel's first encounter with God at the mountain. And they weren't ready either. Now, the first contact of anyone at the mountain was Moses. He was a sheep shepherd at the time and he was at this particular mountain and he saw this burning bush and God speaks to him and short summary is I want you to go to Egypt and bring my people out of Egypt and he had lots of objections why that's not going to happen and then God said this this is from Exodus 3:12. he says certainly I will be with you there's I will be with you an incredible promise and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. So Moses was told at the burning bush, you're going to go rescue my people, and I'm going to take them to a, a wonderful land. But you're going to bring them back to this mountain where they are going to meet me. 
So here's what happened, Exodus 19. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Can you imagine what that would have been like? I mean, here is a mountain and it is quaking and smoking and shaking and there's a loud trumpet sound. And Moses is telling the people, come on everybody, foot of the mountain, let's go meet God. How would you react? We read all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking and when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance. <laughs> Then they said to Moses, "Uh, Moses, uh, speak to us yourself and we'll listen. But don't let God talk to us or we will die. They realized we can't stand in the presence of God. They had this terrifying realization. And by the way, we would have the same. Everything inside of us shouts our unworthiness and our unholiness. We are not prepared to stand before a holy God. We will die. And we would have thought that. Filled with dread, they realized they simply could not dwell in God's presence. And they're right. Unholy people cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. Now, Israel's not the only one. This is certainly a very vivid encounter. But there's another group who is going to experience something similar to Israel at the mountain. Now, this is something that will happen in the future. It hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich And the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? The earth dweller's burning question is, who is able to stand? It's the same question that Israel is asking at the foot of the mountain. How can we possibly stand? And frankly, it is a reasonable and relevant question for us. Before sin entered the world, enjoying God and his company was a natural delight. But after sin, Adam and Eve hid from God. They instinctively knew that their unholiness separated them from God. And every son of Adam and daughter of Eve knows the same sickening sensation. Wrath is coming. 
The clock is ticking. In Colossians 3, 5, and 6, it says, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. It's coming. Jesus actually wants it. Listen to this statement from his first advent. He says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. There is a part of me that longs for this moment, but I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. The day that Jesus longs for is described in Revelation 19, the day when the heavens will open and he will ride a white horse and listen to this, he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. A day is coming. The wrath of God will fall like a consuming fire. And Israel is catching a glimpse of what could happen at the Mount of Sinai, at the foot of it. The future earth dwellers fear it. Jesus anticipates it. So why the delay? Why hasn't it happened? Jesus, Father, make these statements. They say, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? You see, God prefers to impart life, not wrath. He's committed to solving the problem of our sin. Now, solving the sin problem is not like going to the moon. I mean, you know, there was a tremendous amount of effort poured into that enterprise, but no amount of money or effort is going to solve the sin problem. The solution is beyond human ability and beyond our resources. But God has prepared a solution to the sin problem. He has solved the wrath problem, and he delays his wrath to give every man an opportunity to take advantage of the solution. Now, at Mount Sinai, prior to Israel's departure, God gave Israel some first sightings of the solution. Now, we know, you know, that God solved the wrath problem at the cross. But there are actually some first sightings that occurred with Israel at the mountain and in the events leading up to their arrival there that give us insight into how God is going to go about solving this problem, the wrath problem. For example, in Exodus 12, we get a glimpse. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the 10th of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. And he's here instituting the Passover, an annual observance. And he says, your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Interestingly, 6 p.m., 5 p.m. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire. And they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. But do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire. 
both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. What do we see in this glimpse? Well, first thing we see is that the solution to the sin problem will be affected by the shedding of innocent blood. That's one clue. Second clue, the solution to the sin problem will require an innocent to be roasted and consumed with fire. In other words, there would be nothing left of the lamb. And point three, the solution must be internalized. You know, he had you eat as a way of saying, I am making this mine. It has to be internalized and claimed for oneself. This, this Passover was to be an annual event. It probably happened again a few months before this departure, where they remembered once again by the shedding of blood, by the consuming by fire, by the making it your own, this is the, what the solution to the wrath problem looks like. Second glimpse is in Leviticus 16, 1, 2, and 3. There's other glimpses, but I just want you to see these two for now. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. You get what just happened? Two of Aaron's sons decided, we're going to go, we think we can walk into God's presence on our terms. They died. Moses lost two of his sons. God said, the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil in the tabernacle before the mercy seat which is on the ark or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering, that's shed blood, and a ram for a burnt offering, that's flame of fire. Aaron experienced at great personal cost what it means to come into God's presence without the solution. The solution involves the shedding of innocent blood and the burning of the body of an incident. Now, this may have happened a few months before the departure where they saw once again these things. But the fact that these things were repeated, the Passover and the annual entering into the Holy of Holies, tells us that this was not really the solution. This was a glimpse of something else because it wasn't really accomplishing something. Otherwise, why would you have to keep doing it year after year? Israel was learning when they stood at the foot of the mountain. They're catching glimpses of how it is possible to stand in God's presence by seeing through a lens something that God was going to accomplish on the cross, the true solution. And here is what they glimpsed. When an innocent's blood is shed in one's place and his body burned as his substitute, a man can stand in the presence of God. Did you get what I just said? When an innocent's blood is shed in one's place and his body burned as his substitute or consumed by wrath, the fire of wrath, a man can stand in the presence of God. What was happening with the Passover, what was happening with the sacrifice for Aaron to go into the Holy of Holies were but lenses through which you could see this coming. God taught Aaron. God taught Moses. God taught Israel. 
And God teaches us there is a way for an unholy people to stand in the presence of God. The world dwellers are going to ask, this is going to happen in our future. The world dwellers are going to say, who can stand? And what we're seeing here at the foot of Mount Sinai is those who have received the benefit of the innocent's blood and the consuming fire and have made it their own. The Passover lamb and the sacrifices on behalf of Aaron are just the illustration. Our rescue is affected when fire consumes the innocent in our place and his blood is shed on our behalf. That's what we see. But here is the true solution from 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. What he's saying is Jesus is not just the illustration. He's the real thing. He's the one whose blood is shed. He's the one who is consumed by the wrath of God. And he's the one, if you will claim him as yours, allows you to stand in the very presence of God. It says he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, meaning all of, he fulfilled all the terms of these illustrations. He did exactly what those illustrations illustrate. He was buried and then raised, which says, and he was successful. No one walks away from the penitentiary without having paid what is owed. And Jesus walked away from the grave as proof that his payment was sufficient, that it had been paid for. He took our place. Jesus took our place. So is salvation automatic? Hey, Jesus took our place. Everybody's good. No. In uh, Romans 5, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. No wrath. Peace with God through our Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Just imagine a circle here. And I'll call it the circle of grace. And by faith, you step into it in a way that's not dissimilar from what I did. I just physically stepped here. But what this passage is saying is that we can, by faith, we can actually stay up, step into a place where we are surrounded by and protected by grace. By faith, we achieve peace and are introduced into this grace circle in which we stand. Doing so is actually going to protect us from future wrath. Listen to this statement that Paul makes to the Thessalonians. He says, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, get this, who rescues us from the wrath to come. The person who has stepped into this circle and said, I am choosing by faith to trust in Jesus as the one whose blood was shed, as the one who experienced the wrath that I deserve. The person who is in that place is saved from the wrath that is coming. In Jesus, we are rescued. When the wrath of God comes, and it's assured, 
for all who step into that circle. To the question that Israel asked, who can stand? To the question that the future earth dwellers will ask, who can stand? The answer is only those standing in the place that is a place of grace. So what I want to do is just kind of give you a visual image, if I can. And Jesus, when he died, it started out that he was condemned and he was flogged. And a flogging was this brutal thing. And yet he didn't, he didn't say a thing. Uh, in, um, you know, a few months ago, I had a biking accident, and I've mentioned this to you. I was going about 25 and hit the ground and hit my elbow and my shoulder, and I was laying in the middle of the road screaming in agony. And I am absolutely confident that whatever it was I was feeling is nothing compared to what Jesus is feeling. But he said not a word. And as he walked to the cross, at one point, he lacked the, the energy to be able to support what well, was probably the cross beam. I don't know that he actually was carrying the whole cross, but the cross beam. And so they got someone from the crowd to, to take him. And then he came, and they put him up on the cross. They nailed him to the cross. And again, there was no cry of anguish until a moment came. Now, his blood was being poured out, but there came a moment in which the cross was shrouded in darkness, and in that moment, he experienced the wrath of God. And in that moment, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he said, It's finished. I was put in the grave. Now, here's my question for you. In a forest fire, you know, we've seen some of these forest fires on the West Coast last year, and you see it go through this town, and there's nothing. What is the one safe place in a forest fire? The place where the fire has already fallen. That's why this is like a blackened circle, the circle of grace, because the fire of God's wrath fell on him. What I deserve, what you deserve, fell on him so that this becomes the one safe place because the wrath of God is coming. And it will fall on all those who have said, no, not me, I prefer to go on my own terms as opposed to... I'm going to stand right here and be safe. Everyone in this room faces a choice. And it's a pretty simple choice. You can try and earn God's favor, or you can despair of earning it and receive it as a gift. Inside that circle, and I'm going to use this circle so I don't have to go up and down, in this circle, when you step into this circle where the wrath of God has already fallen, there's no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He will not condemn anyone who is in the blackened circle. 
We are inseparable from the love of God. Nothing is going to be able to take us away from God loving us. We will no longer be defined by our history. In Corinthians, he says, and he lists a whole bunch of things, and he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were cleansed when you stand in this circle. You were actually given the power to become a new person. And then I love this, inside this circle, Revelation 22.4 says, I will see his face. I'll be able to look at God and I will not look in shame, but I will look at him and he will look at me and he will say, welcome, son. That's what it means to step in this circle. Every person in this room, you face a simple choice. Do you want to stay outside the circle? The wrath is coming. Or do you want to step inside the circle? Now, I know that many of you have, but there may be some in this room who have never done it. There may be some in this room who have, you know, well, I come to church and I'm a pretty good person. This is not about being a pretty good person. This is about saying, I am choosing by faith to step into the blackened circle and claim Jesus as full payment for my sin. Now, someone might think in this room, well, I need to get my act together. I mean, you know, I can't do that the way I am. And to which I would say, it's not going to happen. Because the power to become someone better is given to those who step into the circle. You can't become a better person unless you have stepped into the blackened circle. Someone might object, well, I don't deserve it. Uh, you don't know who I am and what I've done. And I probably don't, but you don't know who I am and what I've done or what I would become. None of us deserve it. No one deserves to step into the darkened circle. In fact, the only entrance requirement is an admission. I have nothing by which to purchase my entrance. So what I want to do this morning is give an opportunity for anyone who has not stepped into the circle to do so this morning. And I'm going to invite you to just slip out of your seat and come and stand here. We have people who will meet you and share with you how you can know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and come to him. And so I'm asking you right now, if Jesus is calling you, come down here. This is but one safe place where the wrath of God has already fallen. And all that stands between you and safety is a simple choice by faith to step into the darkened circle. I'm going to just pause a moment and give you, whoever wants to, an opportunity to come. I'm, I'm not going to pray in this moment. I'm just going to pause. You come. You may be hesitant to come. Maybe there's someone seated beside you who'd be willing to just come with you, and you can come. But come to the cross. As was true of Israel, so it is for us. Our journey with God begins at the blackened circle. You can start a journey with God.
by doing something as simple as saying, I want Jesus to be my salvation. Don't wait. Don't delay. Come on. Come down. Embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you've never, by faith, stepped into this circle, here is your opportunity. Would you come? I'll give you just a minute more. There's a passage, Ephesians 5, 2. It says, walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you. The reason that Jesus walked to the cross was because he loves you. He wants you to come, that he might claim you as one who is safe and whom he will love for all eternity. He provided the solution to the problem of wrath, even by sacrificing himself in our place, because he loves you and wants you to stand in his presence, knowing his love. Will you come? I'm going to give you a few minutes to do that and, uh, as the band plays, but I'm going to go ahead and pray with you. And then if you want to come, now is your moment. Don't let it pass if you know God is telling you to come. Father, there may be someone in this room. There may be someone who does not yet know you as personal Savior. Or maybe they've even thought, you know, I know Jesus. But they don't. I'm asking for your spirit, who is the spirit of conviction, to minister to them in such a way that they are able to say, I need to put it all on the line and make Jesus my Savior. Father, I pray that you would give them conviction, but you would also give them courage. You would bring them to a place where they say, yes, I will do this. I don't care what anybody else sees or thinks. All I care about is what you see and what you think and I am bringing my heart to you. Father, we do this desperate for you to work in such a way that no one leaves this room who has not stepped into the circle. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.